All right, as I wasted, not really wasted, I wouldn't consider it a waste, but I spent the valuable time doing announcements, I want to get you to go ahead and jump right in to Matthew chapter 5. During this Christmas season, we are looking at a, a familiar passage of Scripture. One of the most famous Christmas carols that we can hear on the on the radio or wherever we turn, and no, it's not last Christmas. We've already talked about how that's a deplorable song. Um, but is go tell it on the mountain. Go tell it on the mountain. It's it's a it's a command. It's a it's a it's an urgency to proclaim some good news. Just as it was told to you, we are to go and tell. And so we may wonder, well, how do I tell it? How do I share it? What do I share? Where do I go? Well, let's go to another mountain where something was told. Where a God said, I am going and being sent and I'm going to share in this place. So we're going to, obviously, the Sermon on the Mount so we can know how to tell it. And, and so I'm going to invite you to turn there and stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And I'm going to do my best to smitch two sermons into one because last week with our guests, I wanted them to have the most important, valuable time for you to hear about what God is doing on the mission field. But here we go. Matthew chapter 5, the words of the Lord given to us and recorded through the Apostle Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew. It says, when he saw the crowds, he went up them on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the humble, or your version may say meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He says, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light Shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes 
and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Lord God, today we've read from your word, words that you spoke, read words that you proclaimed in, in the multitudes and, and words that have been treasured for centuries. So God, in our, in our small moment that we have here, I pray that you would teach us and, and help us grasp on to what we need to hear, how we must respond, and, and how we are to proclaim what has been spoken to us, what has been presented to us what has been entrusted to us. And Lord, may we remember that it is Your Word that is most important here. So help me be but just a servant behind the shadow of Your cross, moved by Your Spirit. And may we all learn from You today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So if you're following along in your Bibles, you, you see this, this teaching. Now, now, I remember at a time in my life where I was like, okay, I get it. Grandma's taught me enough to know that I need to know more about Jesus. I have heard this from the preacher. I've heard this from the Sunday school teacher. I've heard it from grandma and grandpa. I've heard it at times, you know, not every time, but sometimes from my own parents. I've, I've heard it from different people that I need to know this Jesus. And I was taught at a young age that if you want to get into where the word is and hear the words of Jesus, well, you got to go to the place where the words turn red most Word the, read those letters in red and and you'll be all right now i would retract that a little bit because i would say that as jesus is taught that the entirety of the word points towards him it's the entirety of the word we need to know but you don't get more greater red covering the pages than you do with the sermon on the mount and whenever you're hearing a sermon what are you supposed to do what, what is a sermon's intent well, it's for people to hear, to correctly respond, and then take that response and live it and, and speak it out. To take what they've heard, to live it, to take what they've heard and speak it. That's the whole purpose of a sermon. That's why people come to churches often. It's, it's not just so that, oh, that's a nice speech. It's so that we can actually hear and get a clear ability to respond to what was being taught from the Word so that we too may Respond and proclaim it. And here Jesus gives us this sermon. And I will tell you that in a matter of a few weeks, especially in a matter of one day's sermon, there is no way we could get into the full delving depths of this sermon. It would take immensity to get there and immensity of time. But our aim today is that we would, just as the sermon intended for us to listen, respond, and proclaim, that would be what we are left with. That that as we hear that song and, and we talk about Christmas needing to share the Christmas spirit, share the Christmas message, share the peace on earth, goodwill towards men on whom God's favor rests, we need to have something worth proclaiming. We need to have something worth responding to, something worth listening to. And I could find no greater thing than to go and say, well, you don't need to hear my sermon, you need to hear the Lord's sermon. And in this sermon that Jesus begins with, as he sits down, he sees all of these crowds. And I love how this calls crowds. Some of your Bibles may say multitudes. It's a diversity of people. Not one person is, is absolutely like the other. They may have similarities among a few, but across the multitude, it's, it's incredibly diverse. And what Jesus does is he doesn't say, well, just get some people that's kind of like me, that talk like me, that look like me, and we're going to go follow to a place by ourselves, and they're going to listen to me. All those other people, they can go away. No, he says, I'm going to plop down right here in this perfect spot. 
that he had come to. Jesus never went anywhere by accident. And he seizes the moment to share with the people what they need to hear. The disciples, the, the, those that are already following him are there. And, and the crowds are there. And Jesus captures the people's minds with the very first words. Blessed. In the Latin, you would see it as beatus. The beginning of beautiful. It would be a, a, a word that, that they would mean that he's proclaiming what it means to have joy. He's proclaiming what it means to have grace. He's proclaiming what it means to have favor. That this is what it means to have something overflowing. This is what it means to have a gift. Well, I like gifts. Don't you like gifts? Yes, we do. We have a whole season dedicated to gifts. We love them. And here Jesus says, I'm proclaiming God's gift to you. And he says, this is how you receive that gift from God. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. This gift that he proclaims, he's saying that the poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is there. Now, we could take a lot of time just going through the Beatitudes, but in, in essence, Jesus is saying here that those who are desperate, lacking, and recognize that they are lacking, and all of them, that they recognize that they are all charity cases. No one likes being called that, right? You don't want to be called a charity case. But those that recognize that without Jesus, that's exactly what we are, and with Jesus, that's also exactly what we are. Those that recognize that and come to Him who not recognize that they lack and they need His charity and His grace and His kindness that only He can provide. He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I love this promise. It's, it's different from, it's, there's only two promises that says something is already yours. That something is already yours. And that is those who are poor in spirit. This is they're already provided the promise. It's already certain. It's already guaranteed. It's already there. It's already available. The kingdom of heaven, when you recognize that you are poor and in need and you come to God who is the king and has everything in his feet, he says, I give you a kingdom. The poor are provided a promise. A promised land, a promised place, a promised palace is theirs. It's available. It's the already. Good as secure. But that is not the only part of this gift. There are some promises that are available that are made prevalent to those who call and need it. A gift is available. A blessing to those who mourn for they will be comforted. That Jesus says is that when those times of mourning arise and you turn to the Lord for the sorrowing there is solace. There is solace in Jesus available. It will, it will come. It will be made available. It's something that you may not know yet. You may not even know you need it yet, but in that time, it will be there. For those that are humble or meek, the idea of something of a strong man restraining of their power, knowing they have authority and the ability to do something mighty, but they keep it under a, 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 a rap for the sake of kindness, for the sake of goodness. Well, those that are humble, they are promised honor. They're going to get an inheritance. A beautiful one. They'll inherit the earth. I'm going to tell you. My grandparents, some of them have passed away already. I got a nice rifle. 
from one of them. Got a little bit of money, a little bit of land from another. But And that was nice. I'm glad they did that for us as grandchildren. I, I, it's awesome. But for you, though, think that meekness is weakness. For, for those of you who think that, oh, I can't be humble. There's no honor in that. Jesus says, if you honor me, you're inheriting the earth. Grandma and Grandpa can't leave you that. But Jesus promises that. For those that will emulate Him, His strength, His power, but holding it in humility and living it out. If you think meekness is weakness, try being meek for a week. It's going to be not easy. You'll realize it takes strength to do it. But Jesus promises an honor for those who live it. So those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those that are starving, they're going to be promised satisfaction. But it's not just like, oh, I had this need and this hunger for anything. No, it's a hunger and thirst for righteousness. In fact, if you were to wrap the entire Sermon of the Mount into one word, it would be righteousness. If you were to bring it into one word, Jesus is speaking about righteousness. And he's saying, it's the one thing that you lack. And it's the one thing that I can credit to your account. And just as Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, it was, it was a gift, it wasn't something he earned. It was like, alright, here is a, 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 a delight, a, a gift that I'm giving you. We too, when we realize that Wow, we are starving and hungering for righteousness. Jesus says, I'm going to satisfy you. I'm not going to give you a smidgen. I'm going to give you a seven-course meal of righteousness. It's going to take time to go through a seven-course meal. But I'm going to make it available to you. I'm going to make you positionally righteous in my eyes, something that you didn't have. But I'm also going to work with you. I'm going to pour into you. I'm going to feed you with that which makes you not only positionally righteous, but your your life begins to emulate and that practical righteousness begins to come up until you, you see the satisfaction in life it brings. That you're filled. It says that the, that the gracious also are, are promised graciousness. Those who are merciful will be shown mercy. That, that we who are demonstrators of God's grace, we will also be people that feel and, and understand and, and have that grace upon our life. Which makes sense. None of us likes to live in guilt, imprisoned by fear, bitterness. None of us likes to live in that place. But certainly there are some times where we say, I never want to choose that, but I will choose to be unforgiving. And thus we're surprised when that has a bitter sting. And we wonder why our life seems enslaved by this. Jesus is those that know me. They understand, experience my mercy. And I've demonstrated my mercy to them. I am merciful to them. We're to do that for others. And in doing so, we receive a gift of mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure are promised a perception. The ability to see God in a greater way. Now this doesn't mean that if, if you're super pious and you check box A and you point the coin in slot C and, and do pulley D and all this thing. I know I skipped B. I understand that just to see if you were listening. That doesn't mean God is obligated to do anything for you. But for God to say, those who are pure in heart, because He knows actually what purity is. He knows what the motivation behind our piety is. 
He says, those that are pure in heart, that are devoted to me, I will give them a unique perception in seeing me. I love what uh, our brother in Christ, C.S. Lewis, said the, about this statement. He says that uh, surely it is only the pure in heart that see God, for it's only the pure in heart that want to. It's only the pure in heart that want to. Their life is devoted, but Jesus has promised that this is, this is a, a blessing for those that pursue out of a pure heart, wanting to see Him. He gives them perception. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. But the reconcilers are promised recognition that whenever you're seeking to be one that reconciles and makes peace, someone once used the illustration of this, what is a peacemaker? Is it someone that, that carries around a peace? And they're ready to stop and strike down anyone that will bring the conflict? No. The peacemaker illustration is more as... Thinking about the writer and the conductor of a symphony. They're taking instruments from here and there. And, and, and these make really low sounds. And these make really high-end sounds. And these have really sharp and, and staccato notes. And, and, and they're taking a melody that's the, the main part of the song. But then they're adding this little harmony. And they're adding this little rhythm. Until all of it comes together into this beautiful masterpiece. They're reconciling something that is completely different otherwise. And bringing it together. This is our role. That God has already demonstrated for us by being that one. Who took people from various places. All of them struggling with sin, but all of them uniquely different. And he brings them together and says, this is my masterpiece. And then when we look at the church, that's exactly what it's intended to be. But it's not meant to stop there in the church. It's meant to continue on. But he says, those that did that, that lived that out, they will be called sons of God. Because why? Because they're really bearing the image of God in what he has done for us. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. You face the struggle of actual righteousness, not self-righteousness. Jesus clarified this point just a few verses below when he says that you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. He says those that are persecuted, though, that will face the brunt and the brutality of this world, falsely insulted, That's the kind of imagery here. Saying evil against you because of Jesus. By the way, for this Christmas season, that lets you know what persecution is. I understand being upset and maybe a little bit, you know, oh, wow, they said happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. But my friends, that is not persecution. That is not But even if you feel the brunt of this world because of Jesus' namesake for taking the stand not for your own self-righteousness but for His, even if you face the brunt of this world, you'll face the beauty and receive the beauty of Christ who says, for those who are persecuted, who, who just stuck in prison, I'm going to give them a palace. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a gift. But why does Jesus give us a gift? Jesus never does anything on accident. He never does anything without a purpose. He never does anything without a plan. It's a part of God's might that He does this. His gift has a goal. And what is that goal? Really quickly, looking at verses 13 through 16, we see that we're to be the salt of the earth and we're to be the light of the world. 
This is a part of our life, our, our determination. Now, I want to ask you something. Whenever you take that salt and you put it on the table, when does it lose its saltiness? At what point do you salt your, fr- salt your fries that they become no longer salty? I can't think of a time. And what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that you're the salt of the earth, and he's saying, if it's not good, it's meant to be thrown out by many. He says, you're either salt or you're not. There's no such thing as something that was salty no longer being salty. It just doesn't happen. Salt makes it salty, and you put more salt on it, it becomes saltier. He's saying that if you have me, there's something in you that's going to be demonstrated there. Now, I want to be clarifying, because I know that in our trend right now in American culture, the word being salty is uh, it might be a little different. This does not mean coming out and being a curmudgeon. You know, where you just like have the the uh, Grinch face going on all the time. No, no one opposed to Stefan or anything like that. No, he said it was a Grinch, but he's not really. Well, maybe. Um, <laughs> no, no. But seriously, uh, that's not what that means. It means being something. And uh, there's been lots written about this. But something that is, is a preservative value, something that is a flavor-changing value, something that makes things different. And once it's made salty, it no longer goes back. And if you're not salty, you're just dirt. That's what it is. You just right. You may be uh, look like the same, but here it's just dirt. Anything else can be dissolved, can be washed away, but saltiness is not. It, and everything else is just worth being trampled on people's feet. And that, I know that's a brutal image, but that's it. Jesus is saying you're either salty or not. And you're either a light for the world or you're someone that's trying to hide. He says, when you put a city on a hill, it cannot be hidden if the lights are on. If the lights are on, you're going to see it. You, see, you can watch even now. It's incredible. International Space Station flying over places of the world and, and you can see the illumination in the dark and when the earth is in the shadow. The cities are still bright. Cities were not hidden at night. You could see their lights from far away. He says, so it's, it makes no sense that people would light a candle then put a basket on top so that you know you can't see the light. No, the very intention is to be the light. And so us, as we have Jesus, we're meant to be those that are like a lampstand, shining for all to see, not so they can say, Woo! That boy's bright. Woo! That looks pretty. Wow! Look at all these decorations. You sure are good. No. The point is for people to see this and to understand what's behind it. To see that there's light, yes. But what's the fuel? It's that God who is making that light shine through. You're to be light and salt. That's a goal. But here's the thing. We can't do it on our own. Some people read the Sermon on the Mount and they think, oh, it's about like a a social gospel. It's about doing right things, not doing bad things. It's about self-improvement. It's about washing yourself clean. It's about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's about having a little sprinkle of Jesus in my day. And that's not what it's about. It's showing us what righteousness is and that we lack it apart from Jesus. And so Jesus goes and says, I am the God sent. I am the one that was sent by the Lord to fulfill the law for you and to fulfill your loss. 
to meet where you fall short. Because he says, don't think that I'm coming to take away the law and the prophets, not even to abolish it. I'm coming to fulfill it because you can't. And don't think that it's going away. That there's only certain parts of the Bible that you should look at or the parts that sound fanciful. He's saying until the fulfillment of all things, not one stroke of the letter of the law or even the the dotting of the I or crossing of the T will ever be removed. So don't discount, don't devalue any part of the Bible. I've heard a a common thing that's going around by a a rather famous preacher and and I've respected this person in so many ways. But one of the the false things that he's saying is that we need to be as a church unhitching ourselves from part of the Bible. That's not what Jesus says. He says, until the fulfillment of all things, it stands. In fact, the Bible pretty much says that the grass withers and fades, but the word of the Lord, it stands forever. But Jesus says, don't worry, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. He says, because you can't. God's standard of righteousness, none of us can achieve. The Bible tells us all of us sin and fall short of that. But the greatest news is that God demonstrates His love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we had failed the law, we had just miserably, brutally bombed the test, Christ died for us. I mean, I think about this. It says in verse 19, it says, Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands, (laughs) guilty. And then teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And I don't think I've ever intentionally taught somebody to disobey God's law. But there have been times by my actions I've demonstrated that it's okay. So I am guilty, guilty, guilty. It's stamped in there. I'm done for. And then Jesus goes a step further. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes were those that that had written and copied and written and copied to the point that they were experts of what a, a scroll had said. Knowing fully in its in all of its entirety what it actually said. And the Pharisees were men and peoples that were dedicated. After the exile in the Old Testament, They, when they set these synagogues up, they were so dedicated that they never wanted to return back to a place of exile, never wanted to return back to a place of idolatry, that they began taking a law, and then they would write other laws around it, and other laws around it, and other laws around it, until a law like remember the Sabbath and keep it holy would be from one law to 633 laws. All for the point of not abandoning and, and leaning towards idolatry. But guess what they did? They leaned towards idolatry. That the law became their God, not the Lord who gave the law. But yet they were experts at trying to live it out and straining it out as much as possible. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that. And many people look around like, I ain't even close. It's not even a, it's not even a race. And Jesus says, I fulfill the law, but I also fulfill your loss, your lack. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Why do we need someone to fulfill that for us? Because we're guilty. Jesus doesn't start with the, the brutal news first. 
He didn't say, oh, you're a bunch of scumbags. Come hear my sermon. (laughs) That's not what Jesus starts with. He says, this is the blessing. Oh, man, I want to hear that. But here's the bad news. Here's why you need this. He said, because you are guilty. He starts talking about murder that begins in the heart. Most people had probably not committed the actual act of premeditated intentional murder or had gone to the level of adultery that as far as committing it. But he's talking about the area of your heart. He says that if you've ever insulted a brother or sister, that you may be subjected to the court, but if you've ever called him a fool, you'll be subjected to hell. He says that's got to be made right. He says, because murder, it, it starts in the heart. It's where it's at. It's a part of our thoughts. He says, adultery is there. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what are we guilty of? Well, one, we're convicted of rebellion against God's design. That when we look at another image bearer, And all people that are created bear the image of God. And we look at them with disdain. We discount them as less than human. Or if we've ever come out and outright said we hated them, we're guilty of rebellion against God's design. That we would love our fellow man. And if we've ever looked lustfully, or 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 not just not just committing adultery, but ever looked lustfully, we're also convicted of rebellion against God's direction. That he has a law of what he has planned for how this is to play out. Even a relationship between the husband and wife. And so Jesus just gives us two illustrations there to show us where we've broken the law. Why we're guilty. You may think, well, I'm not that bad of a person, Pastor. You know, I've never committed murder. I hate anybody. I'm, I'm a good guy. I've heard that, that before. And, and I would ask then further on with other commands in the law, because this is just two out of the ten. Um, have you ever taken something that, that uh, doesn't belong to you? Even if it's something you would say is it's a paper clip or a pen or something. Well, have you ever taken something that belong, doesn't belong to you? If you've ever done that, what do we say about people that take things that don't belong to them? We call them thieves. And that's actual committing it. If you've ever told a lie or bared false witness, you're a liar. And if you've ever said anything in rebellion against God's name himself, you're a blasphemer. So we're guilty. We're guilty. And Jesus says that those that have his blessings, though, they are to live out a grace-filled life, a a life that honors God in their homes. When Jesus speaks about this plan and talking about divorce, he says this is not God's direction for you. And there's only one reason that that you are to ever let this come about in your in your home. And I'm not trying to cast stones about to those that have been divorced in this room. I know that what that looks like. I know what that's about. My, my dad was, has been married five times. I've never been divorced and hopefully, praise the Lord, I, I hope it'll never happen. It's a big deal. I, my wife's smiling. I, I'm hoping that's a good smile. <laughs> She's like, no, it's till death do you part, honey. So, um, let me check in my, uh, bowl of soup later. Um, but, no, no, I love her. She's, she's definitely a gift of grace. But we're to honor God in our homes. In our marriages, it's, it's meant to overflow. The Bible speaks about this here, and it speaks about this in various other places. That tie it all together, the home is a place to be honoring God. 
That God has a mission for us to live out. And, and there's a correct way of doing it. And there's a way that dishonors God. And we're to avoid the way that dishonors God if we're going to live that grace-filled life. We're to honor God with our words by telling the truth, not breaking oaths, but letting our yes be yes. Not swearing on things as if it adds a little bit of better condition to our words, but living out truth because we're grace-filled. And just as God gave us full truth and honored us with His words, we want to honor people with ours. We're to honor God in our actions. When we go the second mile, we're not to aim our life and say, well, whoever comes against me, I'm aiming to get that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. There's a provision for that. If there's a breaking of the law and oppression and abuse of those who are neglected, but in most ways we're to live with being able to go the second mile, turning the other cheek, lending our coat. There's something to be distinctive, in other words, about those who know God's grace. Because God's grace fills us with a distinction. We're to honor God in our love, not just love for those who are like us, talk like us, look like us, but even love for our enemies. Not just our neighbor, but Jesus goes further and says our enemies. I know I'm really jetting through this very fast. But God talks about even His love for the enemy. And if we're to emulate Him, this is what it looks like in our homes, in our words, in our actions, in our love, that we would be people that show that we're gift-received. We've received a gift. And we want to give it out to others just as we've been given. But here's the problem, isn't it? Just looking at this list. I mean, we we didn't even dive deep here. We see our problem. Do we honor God in our homes? Do we honor God with our words? Do we honor God with our actions? Do we honor God with our love? Are we guilty of against God's design? Are we guilty against God's direction? Do we break the law? Are we lost? Are we being the salt of the earth? Are we the light of the world? Are we living like people of blessing? No. And we cannot. And we are righteous not on our own merits, but strictly through the gospel. The last line of chapter 5, as is recording in, in our English version of the Bible, is this. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm done. There's, there's, if, that's the, if that's the level, if that's the standard, I'm out. Well, none of us should even be here. Because we're not reaching that. If that's the good news, just to be perfect as God is perfect, Christmas is not something that we want to celebrate. If being perfect as our Father is perfect, that's the standard that we've got to meet. Easter is about pretty colors, but nothing much. But the great news is that the perfection that we miss out on is made up. Even though we lack and do not fulfill the law, even though we have loss, God brings that perfection. We can't be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, so God Himself takes our place. God is perfect. That's the very character of Him. That's, that's the gospel in the beginning of it, that this God that we speak of is perfect in all of His totality. He's holy, distinctive, and we are not. Our perfection, our imperfection is seen, it's evident in the offense of sin. I just labeled a few of them a few minutes ago. It's prevalent. But this is where God shows if there's something far greater than perfect, He's it. Because in our imperfection, what Christ does 
while we were still sinners. Not after we had tried to clean things up, not after we had gone into our New Year's resolution, but even while we were in the middle of that, the sufficiency of Christ is evident. And He pays the price. The Bible says that God made Him who knew no sin to take on sin for us so that the righteousness of God might be available. It might be exchanged. In other words, who we say, God, here's my empty bucket, or maybe it's not so empty, maybe it's really dirty because of my sin. Um, that's all I've got. What do you got? And he goes, well, I've got the righteousness of God. I'll take that ugly bucket and I'll give you this. This is the blessing. This is the grace. This is the gift. This is what he makes available. And this is why he said, I want you to, as I sit down and, and share this with the multitudes then, so they could hear respond and then take what they have heard and and apply it and proclaim it to others this is why we today even two thousand years are still needing to sit down at with the feet of jesus say god i need your words help me to hear you respond to you and live it out not only in my words but in my deeds not only in my deeds but in my words because obviously i'm getting this because you chose to make it known so i could hear it and respond and proclaim it If I want others to know it, then someone's got to speak it so they can hear it and respond and proclaim it. Let's pray. Lord God, today, as we come to the conclusion of this this message time and and nearing the end of this worship gathering, we've listened to some words that you sat down and proclaimed, and, and I pray that in this moment we will not discount them, we will not over inflate them to make them something that they aren't but we will not see them for less than they are and that is words that came from the very 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 mouth of god and so god uh, help us see their potency help us see our need for a response and god do what only you can do because no matter how convincing my words may be It is only your Holy Spirit that could draw a person to you. It is only your Holy Spirit gifted to us through the promises and provision of Jesus that can save. It is only you who can transform a life. It is only you who can take someone who believes and make them into a fully devoted follower of Christ. So Jesus, in this moment where we have this invitation to do just that and respond to what only you can do, I ask that you have your way. Help us have ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are open to you. In Jesus' name, amen.